0: Amen, amen. Good morning. I know it is cold, and I know you lost an hour last night, so I'll make your deal. If you stay awake, I will. So uh, we're going to jump right in because we've got a lot to deal with this morning. So as Jonathan said, we've been going through the book of Proverbs. We've been working through the poems in the first nine chapters. Uh, we are concluding here the Father's description of wisdom. And so he links creation, With salvation, the the, the promise of life and wisdom. And um, he's setting up wisdom's final plea in chapter 9. So where we are in the book is for eight chapters. The father has been saying to his sons, King Solomon, to his sons, be wise. Watch out for these things in the world. Go after wisdom. Don't go after folly. And now there's going to be the the final appeal in chapter 9 from um, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. And then chapter 10 begins the individual proverbs. So, in order to apply these individual proverbs that take up the bulk of the book, you have to understand chapters one through nine. You have to understand what's, what's going on, the, the voices in the public square, We're God's representative. And then Satan's representative are, are both vying for your attention. Will you follow Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly? And so this is the final description of Lady Wisdom before she gives her her call to hear and come to her. And we'll get into chapter 10. So what the, the two themes we're going to look at this morning, creation and redemption, there is nothing more fundamental to Israel's covenant relationship with God than God as their creator And God is their redeemer. He reminds them many times, I am the Lord your God, maker of heaven and earth. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He is their creator and their redeemer. And the people of God throughout the ages, this is how we see him. This is what is unique to God's covenant people. He is their creator and their redeemer. And this is something that is unique to us as humanity. Because in all of creation, we are the only ones offered redemption. The angels are not offered redemption. The animals are not offered redemption. Not even the creation itself is offered redemption. It will be destroyed and, and, and remade. But we are offered forgiveness of sins and redemption and restoration. And so this is a, a key component to understanding what it means to be in Christ and what it means that we are the pinnacle of his creation. There's something unique for us. Um, and so where we are, that's where we are in the book. Here's where we are in the chapter. So we've been, this is our third week in chapter eight. The first section, we dealt with wisdom as a principle. So everything we saw, um, as wisdom sets the, the stage and the principle we saw in verses six through 11, this is kind of wisdom as an idea, wisdom as a concept, who she is, who she uh, points to. So that principle, wisdom, she's worked out in time in the lives of men. That's what we saw last week. So this is God's sustaining work through wisdom. She works through the wise. She works through rulers. God uses wisdom to govern the affairs of man in time. So this last section, wisdom is going to point to her relationship with the Lord before time. So last week was wisdom in time, God's sustaining work. This week we're dealing with uh, wisdom before time, God's creating work. And so what all that that means, and so um, the, the standa- stanzas kind of progress from there's an idea of wisdom, there's wisdom as, as imminence, uh, wisdom among us, and now we're going to deal with wisdom as transcendence, wisdom above and, and, and before us. Um, And so there's a flow to this creation song of Yahweh's transcendence. So it'll it'll be there in your notes. So we're going to follow the flow from uh, before the beginning. So wisdom being a divine possession outside of time. Before creation, wisdom um, seeing the creative works of the Lord and being a part of that. The wisdom during creation. Uh, Wisdom then delighting in creation. And then we're going to use the last few verses as our salvation application and hopefully bring it all together. So because this section is highly poetic, we're not going to get into a lot of the exegetical details that we, we normally do. Uh, some places we're going to land, you can see in, in your notes, where there's a big space, we're going to spend a lot of time. Where there's a little space, we're not going to spend much time. Um, because I want you to get the idea of, of, of what's important here. Um, really, verses 24 through, through 29 are more just illustration. So we're going to spend the bulk of our time up front and at the end. And uh, we'll deal with the major themes and the implications. So let's read. Uh, open your Bibles. please. we're in Proverbs chapter 8. I'm begin reading in verse thir- or 22, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Proverbs 8:22: "The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily delighting, rejoicing before him always. Rejoicing in his inhabited word world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise." Do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, what a powerful text. We come before your word each week as your special revelation to us, breathed out by your spirit. But we walk among, among your world each week, your general revelation carved by your mighty hand. Lord, may we never lose our awe of you. May we never lose our need for you. May we never fail to see you as creator Almighty God. Our only hope in life and death. May we love wisdom. May we seek what pleases you. Lord, stir our affections that our hearts would burn to know you and grow in you. We would wait eagerly, daily, to be with you, that we would seek after you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Lord, I pray for this church that our hope would be in life and life everlasting. That through Christ we would persevere. We would be bold in proclaiming your name. We would be confident in our salvation that we have through Christ. Lord, we ask that your spirit would carry us along this morning. Guide our minds, that we would be focused on your word. Guide our affections, that we would grow in love for you, that we would not just desire to add more facts but that we would grow in knowledge of you because you are worth knowing. And there is nothing higher, nothing greater that we can ever pursue. Lord, I praise you for what you're doing in this body. Brothers and sisters who love one another and love your word, that is only by your grace. That is only because of how good you are. That is only because you loved us first. May you guard and protect your church here and all over the globe. May you expose false teachers and bring to shame those who would bring division and false doctrine. Would you continue to convict of sin? That we would be worthy witnesses so that your name would be glorified here and to the ends of the earth until Christ returns. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So as I said earlier, our text is gonna connect uh, the creator and redeemer of the world. And so I think what's going on here is as the Father speaks and His wisdom lays out this final stanza of this, this poem, she's essentially saying, you see the majesty and the mystery of creation all around you. How can you see all that? Know that a God created that and not seek that God. How could you see all this life around you and not know that there is life in him? How could you see all the majesty of creation? I, wisdom, was there. I saw it. I am calling you to cry out to God. How could you see that and still go after idols unless you're a fool? This is the argument that Paul makes in Romans 1. Romans 1, famous for a lot of reasons, but Romans 1 gets to the condition of the heart of those who reject the Lord. So I want you to look at this. uh, this, uh, We're going to look at a lot of uh, creation parallels. Romans 1 uh, being chief among them. And we're going to flesh this out a little bit later. Romans 1, I'm going to pick up in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. This is what wisdom is saying. Paul's saying the same thing. And the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Essentially, when you look up in the skies and the mountains and the trees and you say there is no God, you are deceiving yourself, you are a liar and your judgment is upon your head. You are hardening your heart as Pharaoh did and your destruction will be like his. But even going so far, verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. The people who would tell us at the top of their lungs that they're the wisest and the smartest are the most foolish, especially in this regard. And they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, worshiping the creation rather than the creator, looking to things that are made by human hands or that die instead of looking to the eternal, almighty God. God. And so as we begin this, before we jump into our text, I want you to think about the fact that this world has a powerful creator and this world has a beginning should bring humanity the reminder that you have a creator and that you have a beginning. And the creator who began your life can end it. The creator who gave you your life can take it. And the creator who gave you this life, this temporary life, He offers eternal life. And all of the world around us should drive us to that creator to plead for his grace and his mercy on us. And we'll flesh that out more. Uh, And we're gonna end with the kind of closing exhortation to find him and live. All right, verse 22. This begins with the Lord. This is Yahweh, this is God's covenant name to his people. Yahweh is the focus. Up to this point, wisdom has been the the primary character. But even as she speaks of herself, she's always a servant of the Lord. Her only importance is in relation to the living God. The only time she draws attention to herself is to remind the reader that I am here to serve the living God. She doesn't seek to glorify herself. Her only aim is declaring the prominence and, the, and to proclaim the work of the Lord, glorifying him. Here's our first lesson this morning. Wisdom does not seek to glorify self. If you are wise, you know you are not worthy of worshiping. Everyone should not be following you. If you are wise, you know that any good thought you have, any good deed you do is only because God graciously grants it to you. Even wisdom, this beautiful attribute of God, it takes no credit for what she does. She points the reader to the one she serves. And the same with us, our only importance is our relationship to Almighty God. and So I want you to think about that as we work through this. The Lord possessed me. So again, we're going to be front heavy. We're going to kind of breeze through the middle, and we're going to be back heavy as well. Um, possessed is a helpful and accurate translation here. This word in the Hebrew most often means possessed. It um, means to, to get, to hold, uh, to, to uh, have possession of. Uh, but as I mentioned two weeks ago, this can cause some problems. We're going to kind of flesh this out a little bit. So I want to talk about what this text is not saying and what this text is saying. So when you put these, these terms together about wisdom, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work among the first of his acts. Uh, I was set up. I was brought forth. So that kind of gives a, uh, a picture here. So here's what we see in these first couple verses. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there was no depth, I was brought forth. Here's what we see. Wisdom belongs to and is applied by God. Wisdom has a beginning, but wisdom is not a created being. So how do we put all those things together? Um, and this just make it a little technical, but for those of you um, who've, who've struggled with is this Christ or what exactly is, is being said here, I, I, I want to be helpful. And then when you read this, um, it will set up everything else, I promise. What this is not saying, this is not presenting full Christology. What I mean by that is this is, this is not laying out exactly everything we need to know about Christ. This is not a text to prove the eternal generation of the Son, Meaning if Jesus is fully God, He had no beginning, He has no end, He is Son in relationship to the Father throughout all eternity. He is eternally generating, generated from the, the Son, or excuse me, from the, the Father. This is a, a relationship that we can't possibly comprehend, but is put in human terms. If we try to f- force that into this text, we're gonna create problems. But this is what Jehovah's Witnesses and classic Seventh-day Adventists want this text to say. Jesus is the first among the created beings. He's great, absolutely. He's a God of sorts, lowercase g. And so if you look at this as a, as a Christological text, it's, it's going to cause you some, some headaches. Remember we, we talked about two weeks ago. All of wisdom is in Christ. He is the full treasure of all the wisdom of God but not all of Christ is in wisdom in chapter eight. Because if you go through, if you use that hermeneutic and you read through the Bible, every time you see wisdom, you have to try to put Christ in it. Again, you're gonna create a lot more problems. So the other thing we have to realize, this is not written to the fourth century church that has a fully developed Christology. This is not written to the council of, of, of Nicaea trying to work out all of our, of our doctrines about the person and work of Christ. It's not written to a 21st century church with a fully developed Christology. It is written to ancient Israel. It is written to a people who are surrounded by idols. It is written to a people who know the true and living God because he has revealed himself to them, but they, 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 they know him in 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 limit, So when they read this, this is to prepare them for the person and work of Christ. When the first century Jew reads this, oh, everything that we saw in Proverbs 8, we're now seeing in Christ. And so that's why we get our Christology from texts that are meant to be Christological. Now I want you to see texts that that we do see Jesus in and that express this and draw it out further. John 1. You should all know John 1. The language of John 1 brings us all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was. In fact, the same word used twice in Proverbs 8, reshit, is the first word in the, in, in the Tanakh, the Hebrew old scriptures. Beginnings. John 1 says this. It should be on the screen if you want to turn there as well. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. We're not losing any doctrine if wisdom in chapter 8 is not Christ, because John 1, 1 is still true. John 1, 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Notice the language here. In the beginning. this is not. So we always think about beginning as a chronological. And so in the Hebrew understanding, it's not chronological always. It is often um, preeminence or is often first in, in importance. In the the first and most important thing. Before there was anything else, there was the word. The word was, was with God. Wisdom is also God, but the word was God. And all things were made through him. Remember, every time. You read the Lord, every time you read God in the Old Testament, Jesus is there. I think often we, we tend to say, oh, the, God the Father is in the Old Testament and Jesus is in the New Testament. Every time you see L-O-R-D, capital letters, this is Yahweh, the covenant God, the, the, the triune God. Even though they didn't understand him as that, Christ was always there. The Son is eternal. There is no work of the Father or the Spirit that is done apart from the Son. And so we get, we, get, we, we get types and shadows of him all throughout the Old Testament. As we sung earlier, he is the true and better Adam, the true and better Moses, the true and better Abraham, the true and better David. He is the true and better wisdom as well. Another great text, Colossians 1, 15 through 19. If you're going your, to your, um, get your Christology, so doctrine of Christ, and not Trip over yourself trying to make it make sense in the text. Go to where it's clear. Colossians one. I mean, this is the 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 great, probably the greatest christological text in the New Testament. It is beautiful. It's this amazing poem. He er, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all all creation. Now again, this is this is firstborn is in first place, meaning heir. The firstborn inherits the entire kingdom. Notice the language here, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Wisdom points to that, the creating and sustaining work of Christ. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He wasn't just there at the beginning. He is the beginning. The alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. We have to kind of, this is one of those times where we can't understand that that there was a time before time. We think of everything on, on, on a timeline. Before God invented time, Christ was. God is outside of time. He is the beginning. Nothing starts without him. So the same way he's the firstborn of all creation, he's also the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn of redemption. The first in creation, the first in redemption. He's the first in all things. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is where we get our Christology. And this is where this this picture of creator and redeemer come together. He is first in creation, first in redemption. When you see wisdom talk about the work of the Lord, when you see wisdom talk about the attributes of God and the the, the qualities, all of them should point us to Christ. Wisdom always leads us to Christ. Um, And so as God, as we mentioned, when we see creation, when God creates the Son is there. When God redeems, the Son is there. Doesn't like Jesus, I think many of us, whether we realize it or not, we think that Jesus just showed up on on, on the scene in the Gospel of Matthew. But as wisdom will show us, she's been declaring him all along, even before he became manifest or fully revealed. And wisdom proves that in him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom. Um, I think there's a text that's really helpful in this. One verse, 1 Corinthians 1.30. Look at this, and I think the words that Paul uses here are particularly important. So he's talking about uh, the calling of the believers and the work of God. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ, who, look at this phrase, became to us wisdom from God. Became to us wisdom from God, And how is that? Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. When you're saved, when you are born again, when your eyes are open, now wisdom reveals, here's Christ. Here's who he is. You can't understand it apart from being alive in him. This is this amazing revelation from God to his people. If you're in Christ, he became the wisdom of God. So when we read the scriptures, we see something that's amazing. We see redemption. We see creation. That's Christ. That's Christ. Absolutely. Wisdom declares Christ. And so he becomes to us. Not that he needs us, but to us. When our eyes are open, we see what wisdom truly points to. So we saw what this text is not saying way back in Proverbs. I know we've gone a lot of different places. Still in verse 22 Um, here's what it is saying. If wisdom is knowledge rightly applied, so wisdom is discerning and decision-making, the prototypical usage of wisdom was in creation. Meaning, wisdom has a beginning. She is brought forth. And she's brought forth in God's work of creation. Think about it. God is not making, um, I gotta be careful here. Um, God doesn't need to make decisions before creation. God doesn't need anything and so just like um, we don't understand grace as an attribute of God apart from the fall, we don't understand wisdom as an attribute of God apart from creation. When God starts working and, and creating and making, and making decisions, he employs wisdom in a way that he hadn't before to, to show his wisdom, to bring himself glory. So wisdom is, is saying God brought me forth to show God's glory. Wisdom, or excuse me, creation declares me. Just like sin points us to mercy and grace and, um, and redemption. All right, the other thing I want you to see here. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, at the first of his acts of old. Uh, this is what we call in theology general revelation. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 1. If you're not familiar with these terms, this is helpful for us to get. Revelation, what, what, what God declares and, and uh, makes known. In a general sense, God declares who he is in all of creation. You look at the sky, you look at the mountains, as we said earlier. You would have to be a fool to see a gazelle run and say, man, evolution's amazing. General revelation says every time you see the mountains and every time you see a human being who thinks and acts and does things like snap our fingers, God created them. General revelation declares who God is in a general sense in all of his creation. As opposed to special revelation, they're two sides of the same coin. God reveals himself in a special way in his word, in a, in a direct way uh, through the scriptures. So this text is about general revelation and um, wisdom declares this wise creator. And as we saw before, this creator is Christ the Lord. That is who we should see, and so um, when I wanna put all this together. Wisdom declares a wise creator, and that creator is Christ the Lord. All right, so now we've kinda of built the foundation, and then we can begin to move. So this is like a journey where you spend 10 hours packing, uh, and then once, once you're packed, you can, you can start running. Now we're gonna start running. We're all all, all packed. Uh, Verse 24. When there was no depth, I was brought forth. When there are no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped. Before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he made the earth with its fields. Or the first of the dust of the world. Notice this vivid development. Uh, These specifics are not not important. But this is showing contrast. From the depths of the sea. The dark deep of the unknown of the oceans, God did that. To the mountains. As high as you can get up and as low as you can get down, God did that too. And I was there. I was there. I saw it. God brought me forth to accomplish this. To the springs of, of water, the the, the the source of life. I was there too. From the mountains to the heights. To the fields where man can't get to. At this time, they were not climbing Mount Everest. And to the fields where, where, where man is. Where you walk and where you eat, no one, no one sleeps on a mountain. You sleep in the fields. I'm there. Even down to the dust in verse 26. Before he made the earth with his fields or the first of the dust of the world. There is not one particle that I wasn't there for that I didn't see God create. I've seen him make everything. Wisdom was there before them all. This reminded me as I was studying this week, the end of Job. There was so many passages I wanted to uh, quote in the end of Job. The end of Job, after Job and his his whiny friends um, incessantly talk for 30 something chapters. Chapter 38. Job just hints at, God why are you doing this? And God, for three chapters, castigates him. Stand up and answer me like a man. Where were you when I did all of these things? This is what I see here. The arrogance of men, who are you to speak back to God? Who are you to question him? Look at the mountains. Look at the expanse of space. Look at the sea. Are you the one who stops the waters? This really gets to our arrogant desire to know, our desire to understand and comprehend all things, especially in our age. There's like this endless pursuit of knowledge as if I could at some point in my life grasp everything that needs to be grasped. Even with Google, Google knows everything. And there is not, and there is not one person who can memorize the first five pages of your, of your search think about that all the information that's out there but what do we always hear well if you learn more if you do more there's always this 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 human pursuit of trying to understand everything and fit everything into our minds we can't understand how the mountains got here we can understand how God stops the water in the bottom of the ocean from going into the center of the earth or however that all, all that that works but wisdom was there The wisdom of God understands all things. So what is more fruitful to pursue? All the knowledge in all of Google or the wisdom of God who is there? Wisdom knows all things. God used her to create this this beautiful world. And if you get wisdom, if you get the true wisdom of the Lord, applying his knowledge in his fear, that is all you need. All right, next section, 27 through 29. Uh, This is kind of, this is during creation. He was there. Wisdom as as, or she was there. Wisdom as a front row seat. When he, when he, when he, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. You know where the water stopped? I was there for that. When he made firm the skies above. Basically, the sky does not fall on us because God keeps it up there. We do not have meteorites crashing into earth every second because God holds him up there. When he established the foundation of the deep, the earth doesn't crumble at its core because God stopped it. When he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundation of the earth, God has set everything in its place. It stops where he tells it to stop. It goes where he tells it to go. And wisdom is there. Again, this picture of the skies to the deep, top to bottom. This is like this cosmic Bob Ross painting of like these just happy clouds and happy seas and, and God made everything and happy trees and, and God made it all in its place perfectly and wisdom is just painting a picture for you. The imagery is beautiful and I saw it. I witnessed it. This is the God who I'm telling you about. This is the God who I want you to follow and worship. The world around us would see a building and say, man, what an architect. They'd see a a painting and say, man, what a painter. They'd see a car and say, what an amazing design. But do they say the same thing when they see the stars? What a creator. When they see the mountains, What it created, when they see birds, when they see fish, the oceans. Uh, William Paley was a 18th century apologist and and theologian has a now famous example, or or, or, uh, it's an apologetic analogy. Basically a picture, word picture that he came up with to defend the faith. He talks about a man walking in the forest. And this is a completely unspoiled natural forest. So you've got trees and you've got bushes and you've got rocks and squirrels and all that stuff. And he comes upon a watch. And he picks up the watch. And his, his first thought is like, man, what a, what a uh, such a uncommon happenstance. Like this, this watch just popped up out of nowhere. No, his thought is what an amazing timepiece. Look at all the intricacies of the, 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 the wheels and the gears. This watch is amazing. It must have had a brilliant watchmaker. When we see a watch, which most of us wear on our our wrist, it is incredible that it keeps time over time. And that one little battery or even automatic motion keeps it in perfect time. And we could say, man, someone is pretty smart to come up with that. I could never come up with that. But yet we see the human body, every cell in our body, is more intricate and more complex than the watch on our wrist. Even your Apple smartwatch, every cell in your body is still more complex than that. And how foolish and darkened are our hearts that in our flesh we would not declare a masterful creator. Creator. If a watch has a watchmaker, then we certainly have a maker. That was his argument. So that leads us to our last section. Verse 30. Then, speaking with everything that came forth, I was beside him, like a master workman. This describes the agreement between wisdom and the Lord. This master workman. Craftsmen create boats, they create houses, what mind does a master workman have to have to create mountains? What mind does a master craftsman have to have to create stars and the ocean? This is a whole different level of, of creation. This is what wisdom is declaring here. And this is why wisdom responds the way she does. Think about it General Revelation shows God's masterwork at, at, at work and we're the pinnacle. We think, we walk, we feel. We can actually create things. We can't create ex nihilo out of nothing, but we create because we're made in God's image. So think about this for a moment practically in our lives. If God didn't create without wisdom, what should that say for us? What should that say for our endeavors? How often do we try to create something in our own image and neglect godly wisdom? How often do we try to create in a different way than what God did? God didn't create apart from his his character, apart from his truth, apart from his, his wisdom, but how often do we? How often do we go off in our own desires, wanting things to be the way we think that they should, giving little or no thought to godly and biblical wisdom? So here she is, wisdom beside the Lord. She is a master workman. And now there's this, I don't know if you guys picked up on the parallelism here, but there's a, a chiasm. We've talked about this word before, the Greek uh, letter chi, which is an X. It, there's two parallels of delight and delight, and then rejoicing in the middle. What a chiasm does is it points you to the middle. The delight of the Lord leads to the rejoicing of wisdom. And her rejoicing leads her to delight in what God has made. And so this is this uh, beautiful little song of of praise as wisdom worships and gives glory to the creator. So notice that we've got delight and then rejoicing. Rejoicing, praise is the heart of this poem. It shows that wisdom is a joy of the Lord. And wisdom is rejoicing in his creativity. The very wisdom that he used to create with praises God for what he's done. And notice how she does it. I was daily by his side, rejoicing before him always. For all times and in all ways and in all places, wisdom praises God. Wisdom rejoices in how, even though she was a tool that God used, she praised God, as should we. How many times have we made something and said, man, look at that. Look what I've done. We should remember that your mind wouldn't work and your hand didn't work if God didn't grant it to you. God, look what you've done. I can't believe you used me to do this. This is what wisdom is saying. For all times and all ways, wisdom lives to praise the Lord. He is worthy of being praised for creation. I love Psalm 119. We're going to read just the, the, the first two verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. This is the epitome of general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You ever stood outside on a clear night with no lights and just looked at the stars and said, God, you are incredible. How awesome you are. We should praise him for general revelation. We should praise him when we see the, wor- his, the works of his hand. If not, the rocks will cry out. Amen? Amen? All right. So, the father's delight here, um, or excuse me, the, God's delight is in the work of wisdom. We want to take it the next step. The father's greatest delight is in the son. Turn to Isaiah forty-two. So we looked at the delight of uh, wisdom, and wisdom is the delight of the Lord. But the delight of His soul, the language is is, is strong here. So. Uh, just a few pages to your right, three books over, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 verse 1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. My life delights in this servant. There's something even greater than wisdom. The father delights in the son. The son delights in the father's will. So much so, That his incarnation, taking on flesh, and his humiliation, going to the cross, became his joy. Stay in Isaiah 42, but look at Hebrews 12. It'll be up on the screen. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Think about this. father delights in the son the son delights in the father so much so that the cross became joy he rejoices just like he rejoiced in creation he rejoices that he gets to go to the cross for redemption he rejoices that what was spoiled by the fall will now be made new by his blood he rejoices that he gets to stand in the place of his bride and lay down his life for her He rejoices that he gets to bring her to new life, that she might live in him and be adopted, that she might, too, share in his inheritance, that she might, too, be with him forever. He rejoices in that even though it costs him his life. This is what the father delights in down to his very soul. Redemption pleases the father because of the son. Redemption pleases the father because of the son. Let's continue on. In Isaiah 42, look how this picture, or uh, redemption and creation come together. Verse 5, thus says the Lord, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. Now, here's the other error that can happen. Here's the error against deism and any of those who want to just spiritually worship the creation. You cannot look to the creator, as in Romans 1, and not look to him as redeemer. I created everything for the purpose of exalting my son. These are all singular use here in chapter 42. I am the Lord. I have called you the servant in righteousness, I will take you, the servant, by the hand and keep you. I will give you, the servant, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. My creation was set up so that I could d- d- um, display my son for everyone and that those who trust in him would have their eyes opened. He'd be a light to the nations. He would bring them out of the dungeon of their own sin, the, the prison of their own darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. The Son shares the glory of the Father, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare, for they spring forth, I am telling you of them. The new thing is Christ coming to be the new Adam and bring in new humanity, which will one day be new heavens and new earth. Back in Proverbs 8. She She is the daily delight of the Lord She rejoices before him always. She rejoices in his inhabited world, not just in the creation, but that's inhabited and delighting in the children of man. How much more does the son rejoice and delight in us that he would lay down his life for us, that he would consider our lives worth his joy? Wisdom just delights that man was created in God's image. This is amazing. Jesus De- delighted enough to stake his life on it. All right, I want to take this uh, one more layer. I want to add on to this Romans eight. So let's bring this this picture of creation one step further. So we're going to see how creation and redemption come together in consummation. All those great theological words. Uh, we're going to break this down and then we'll end on um, application. All right, Romans eight beginning in verse 18. Uh, I'm actually going to begin in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. See how creation and redemption come together here? All of creation made to long for on the edge of their seat, the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Let me tell you what that means. God created the earth. Sin came into the earth so that God could show his glory through redemption, so that all of creation, the angels above, looking down in in wonder at our salvation. The creation is, is groaning the creation is crying out to God, When? When will you remove the curse? When all the sons of God are redeemed? When all the children are brought home? When all of my purposes in Christ are complete? For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. We have the first fruits of the Spirit grown outwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is the already not yet. If you're in Christ, you're adopted now. If you're in Christ, your glorification is assured. You will be in glory with him one day. But we await it. We, we, we have the guarantee of it because the, the Spirit seals it in us. But we don't have it fully yet. The earth groans, we groan, all of creation groans because sin is still a problem. Death is still inevitable. Wickedness still abounds, but the promises of God never fail. We groan because our adoption will be full when we see him in in our final day. So kind of the last thought I want you to reflect on. If the Lord takes such delight in us that he would make creation let it fall into sin and send his son just to, de- just to declare his glory. And the son would take on flesh, not counting equality with God, something to be grasped. And all of creation groans to see us saved and everyone else saved. How grateful should we be? How great is our hope? How great should our rejoicing be? That all of creation declares the work of the Lord and we have a front row seat because we have been given the mind of Christ. We have been given the fullness of wisdom to see it in the scriptures. How often do you think about that? How often do you think about how great your salvation is? Or if you're just going through life, don't give two thoughts about salvation. You are sitting here and think you are in Christ. If that's falling on deaf ears, if I sound like Charlie Brown's teacher right now, I hope you hear these words. Our salvation is a great thing. And then our last few verses are going to be application. 32 through 36. And now, so this is the moral of the story. This is the application of the entire chapter, probably the application of the first eight chapters. Everything builds to this. Wisdom pleases the Lord. She's been with him all along. She testifies of of him. And now, sons, listen to me. I've I've given you everything I have. I'm this eternal principle. I work in the hands of man. I work in the hands of of, of God. Listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. It doesn't say, if you keep my ways, you'll be blessed. Blessed. It said, blessed are the blessings of faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, blessed are you if you keep his ways. That is the fruit of wisdom, that you are blessed with plenty or with little. It is a state of being. And how are we to be faithful? How is that blessedness come? Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. I want you to hear this. How smart you are does not matter. How quickly you learn things does not matter. There are a lot of really smart people who are really foolish. What matters is that you hear, you listen, and you are wise in faith. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, you are not high and of noble birth. There is a lot of simple, ordinary people here, and we're in good company. Amen? Because it is not to those who have all the understanding in the words. It is those who hear and obey, those who apply the knowledge that wisdom wants to teach. And so he goes on, blessed is the one who listens to me. Again, hear in faith and apply, it's a state of blessedness. How? How? How are you blessed? How do you approach this, this blessedness? Two ways. Watching daily at the gates and waiting beside my doors. I want to take a moment on each of these. Watching daily, every day. Think about it. If wisdom is daily the Lord's delight, what do you think becomes of the one who pursues her daily? If the Lord delights in wisdom every day, what do you think our lives look like if we delight in the wisdom of God every day? Do you seek him every day? Do you delight in him every day? I was thinking about this, um, and hopefully you will get this one, but uh, when, I, when I was thinking about this, think about the, the, the little boy who rides up on the tricycle in Incredibles. Um, you, you remember Mr. In, Mr. Incredible who gets home, and he's, and he's frustrated, and he picks his car up, and he's going to slam it, and the boy's on his tricycle, and his jaw drops and he's in awe. And then he shows up the next day and nothing happens and he's just sitting there. Mr. is like, what are you doing? He's like, I don't know. Waiting for something amazing, I guess. <laughs> do you know that every time we see general revelation, we've seen something amazing. Every time we open the scriptures, we see something amazing. We should be like that little boy on his tricycle riding up, waiting to see what God is going to do next. We should be on the edge of our seat because everything he does is amazing. Every day and eagerly, second part here, waiting beside my doors. This is not like the door of the adulterous woman. Remember, stay away from the door of the adulterous woman. There's death in her house. This house has life. Wait beside my door eagerly. Like when you were a kid and you could not wait for your your friends to go outside like that was the most important thing in the world. When all your friends were gonna come out and play, you were so eager, you were were, were so ready, because this was gonna be the best day ever. We live in the presence of the living God. We have been given his word to encourage and instruct us. We have given his world to take dominion over and to enjoy. We should wait eagerly, daily. Both of these with childlike enthusiasm. And finally, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Here's what's at stake. Here's what's always at stake. Life and death. This is not overly dramatic. This is, this is real talk. Life and death. It is either favor from the Lord or you are injuring yourself. You are leading to your own destruction. This is a plea. Find me. Listen to me, O sons. Obtain favor from the Lord. It is freely given. Come and benefit from it. It's this picture of salvation. Walking in full wisdom and knowledge and love of the Lord. Finding his favor wherever you go. Because he's with you. Because your, your, your trust is in him. Because you see your creator. And you know your need for a redeemer. And so finally, love the Lord or hate him. There are, no, there are not two options. As we saw last week, you cannot serve two masters. You must love one and hate the other. You must hate your sin and everything else of this world in comparison to how much you love the Lord. And if you truly love the Lord, if your wisdom leads you to knowledge, you will love Jesus Christ, his servant, in whom his soul delights. Let's pray, and then we will respond in praise to our creator and redeemer. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are great and awesome. You are wonderful in all of your ways. You are wise and majestic, glorious and splendid. Forgive us when we are so focused on ourselves, when we are arrogant to think that we can know and understand things, that we can do things in our own strength, that we can move forward in our own wisdom. Lord, convict and train your people to seek wisdom, that we may find you and find your greatness. That we, like all of creation, like wisdom, would rejoice in who you are and what you've done. That Jesus Christ would be exalted on our lips. That we would look to general revelation and praise you. Look to special revelation and praise you because there we see Christ. May he be glorified in everything we say and do. And in his name we pray, amen.